Welcome to Theosophia, a platform for women's voices and theology. I'm your host, Sarah Elizabeth Smith. I just want to take a quick second and thank my good friend Trip Fuller from the Homebrewed Christianity podcast for a lovely pub theology event this weekend. Um, we were over at Prairie Artisan Ales in Oklahoma City on Saturday, and we did a did a talk on sex, science, and salvation. And it was really cool. We got to, to chat with a group of people about theological awesomeness. And I got to lead a section on conceptions of gender and sexuality in ancient times and contemporary times and talk about resources for authority in the Christian tradition and how we glean truth. Anyways, it was a great event. And my buddy Trip is the man... So thanks again, Trip, for letting me be a part of that. And in the future, looking forward, I will be at his beer theology camp in Asheville, North Carolina, which is the first weekend, I believe, in August. So if anyone's wanting to hang out with us and drink beer all weekend and talk about theological goodness, check it out. And also, coming up this week in Oklahoma City, I am I'm hosting a pub theology event for Grace Church Yukon at the locale in Yukon this Tuesday, June 5th at 6 p.m. So that should be a good time. We're going to be talking about patriotism in the church. All right. So this week, I had the pleasure of sitting down with political writer and author Bonnie Christian. Bonnie is an editor at The Week and a fellow at Defense Priorities. Her publications also appear on news outlets including Time, CNN, Politico, The Hill, Relevant Magazine, Rare, and many other publications. She holds a Master's in Arts in Christian Thought from Bethel Seminary. She's exploring doctoral programs in ethics. Bonnie recently came out with a new book entitled A Flexible Faith, Rethinking What It Means to Follow Jesus Today. So we're so excited to have her on to promote her new book. It's great. I highly recommend it. Go check it out on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever you buy books. It's a, it's a great read. Um, but in this episode, we get to know Bonnie. We discuss her religious upbringing and her journey to the Mennonite Church, as well as her, her passion for news and politics and what led her to pursuing theological education. So I hope you all enjoy. Here's Bonnie. All right, Bonnie, where are you from? Where, where are you calling me from today? Uh, well, right now I am in uh, our home in St. Paul, Minnesota. Excellent. Did you grow up there? I did not. Um, I moved something like eight or nine times before I graduated from high school, oh, wow. um, and mostly up and down the East Coast, but as far west as Texas and as far east as a year in China, um, and then wow. my husband and I moved up to Minnesota for me to go to seminary in the summer of 2013, and we've been here ever since. Wow. So was your family like military or something? No, um, my mom grew up in a military family, um, but, but no, um, she just likes to move. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, there were varying reasons for the each, you know, move, but, 
I think it really comes down to she likes to move. Um, after about, like, towards the end of my high school years, which were all in one place, uh, she made a comment about how it felt like it was uh, time to go again, although she did not actually move that time, but <laughs> it was uh, about, about time based on her previous rhythm. <laughs> nice. So if, like, what do you call home? Is there a specific area you feel like you can talk about home? Not really. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe here more than anywhere else. At this point, we've been here for um, almost five years, so that's about as long as I've been anywhere. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, the, the place I went to high school, I guess I was there five years, too, and came back for summers from college, but that, you know, hardly counts. So mm-hmm. I think once we get to six years here next summer, it'll be the, the longest I've ever lived anywhere. Mm-hmm. Where'd you do undergrad? I forget. I went to Bridgewater College of Virginia, which is a small uh, Church of the Brethren school near Harrisonburg in the Shenandoah Valley. Um, it's bigger now, but when I went there, there were like 1,500 kids and nobody had ever heard of it. Oh, wow. Cool. What, what's your spiritual and religious background? Um, so, you know, moving around a lot, we went to a number of different churches just based on what was available in any given location. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the, the denomination most commonly represented would be Baptist, um, but we probably went to more uh, non-denominational churches overall, although except for like governance structures, they were basically Baptist. Um, we did briefly attend a Methodist church, but that didn't last, so mostly that. Um, and then uh, for a year in between high school and college, I, I went to uh, YWAM Youth with a Mission for a five-month program there, um, which was great in, in many ways. They are, however, um, more more charismatic than I was or am used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I know now, like reading your book, you identify as, as Mennonite, right? Right. How did you get all the way to the Mennonites. <laughs> I mean, in, in many ways, in, in a lot of things, it's not a, a big jump. I mean, certainly things like, you know, view of communion and baptism, stuff like that, emphasis on, um, I mean, Baptists and, and Mennonites are both non-creedal, so um, mm. not that that's like a, a major point for me, but anyway, there are some similarities. Right. Um, but uh, I actually came to it sort of in a roundabout way um, on so most of the work I do on a on a weekly basis is um, mostly political writing. Um, I write a lot about foreign policy, um, and so in the years of college and shortly after college, um, I was increasingly coming to an anti-war position, um, opposing our, our current wars, and then that led me to exploring. Uh, the theological views on that point. Right. Uh, I, I sort of grew up in, you know, generic just war theory type stuff. Sure. Um, and so, um, yeah, it, that after a while, uh, I sort of didn't want to come to that conclusion for, for a little bit. Um, but I, I ultimately found it escapable, the, the conclusion that the historic peace churches like the Mennonites and, and other Anabaptist traditions, the Quakers, that sort of thing, Right, right on on nonviolence, um, and so once I, I came to that view, um, it was you know only natural to to look for a Mennonite church to join. Where I was living at the time, that wasn't really an option. But then we moved up here, 
um, we were, there's one right in our neighborhood. And so we were very excited to, to be able to get involved there. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting. The types of churches people are drawn to um, in terms of what, what issue it is for them. Like you're saying that time in your life, in your, in your work, your vocational work as a writer in politics, um, it being, the, the violence piece and your theology around violence and war um, was really formative to you. And for me, I guess right now in my life, it's more, or it has been for a while because I went to undergrad at a Catholic institution and I, I really enjoyed it, but I, I just never could f- felt like as a woman, um, mm-hmm. I could join the church. So women's issues and women in leadership and our equality, which you is one piece you do talk in the book. Mm-hmm. has been kind of my thing. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go to a church that doesn't allow women to be ordained. Right. Right. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but I get really irritated at like my brother who goes to a church that won't ordain women. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah. And that is something I, I appreciate about, um, certainly there are, you know, many varieties of Mennonites as with any denomination, but right. um, we're in Mennonite church USA and it, it does ordain women. And so that was a, a factor as well. Um, right now oh. we're in the, well, I don't know exactly how this process works. It seems like there's several steps, but one of our two pastors, uh, who is a woman is in the process of getting, I don't think it's ordained. I think it's like there's a first step and then later the ordination comes after like a couple of years of apprenticing. I don't know, but she's in that process. Um, mm-hmm. But I would also say that that a big part of, um, while the, the theology was a big part of what drew us to the Mennonite tradition, um, Mennonites are just super good at community. And that was probably yeah. the single biggest reason that we stayed, especially moving up to Minnesota where we knew literally no one. Right. Uh, and so, and Minnesotans are, you know, there's very much the, the Minnesota nice um, reputation. And that's true, but nice doesn't necessarily mean like, quick to become actual friends with you right and so the really robust and intentional um and this is such a cliche but the intentional community um that that our church cultivates and values um has been you know integral and and so necessary in our lives Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah community is huge i I know that's a reason why a lot of folks go to church in general but um I have several Mennonite friends and I I hear that from them specifically about the Mennonite church, um, the community piece and kind of the functioning as a family and everyone's part of the family. I I love that. I think that's how church should function. Um, That's really cool. Yeah. Um, Why don't now, well, how don't we talk a little bit about your theological training? You went to Bethel. You said you went to seminary. You, You moved to Minnesota to go to Bethel. Yes. And say more about that in terms of why you chose Bethel and what, what your focus was there. Sure. Um, so I picked Bethel for a couple of reasons. I first found out about Bethel uh, just through its connections to Greg Boyd, who wrote the, the forward to my book and whose work I'd been reading for a while before we came up here. Um, so that was how it sort of first came on my radar, you know, of like the many seminaries there are. Um, right. And, but the reason I applied there, um, well, one, I, I don't know if you're familiar with, um, I want to say it was like in the early 2000s, it was well before my time. Um, there was a big controversy at Bethel, Bethel between Boyd and John Piper, 
mm. um, which essentially boiled down to Piper, you know, is a very much a Calvinist and he was super not happy with Boyd's view um, on the open view of the future, open theism, mm-hmm. uh, to the point that he argued it was heresy and that Boyd should not be allowed to teach at this, this university. Um, and so this was a big fight and like, they were deciding it for a long time. And again, this is not my time, so I, I don't know exactly how it went down, but eventually what it came down to was they decided that it was not heresy. Um, I think he does tend to co-teach. He doesn't teach it very much anymore, but he does tend to co-teach classes with another professor. Mm-hmm. Um, but they didn't, you know, declare him a heretic and kick him out. And so um, it was appealing to me, the idea of a university that could have two such very different and opposing perspectives mm. under one roof and you know even with pushback say no we're we're going to keep both of these perspectives under one roof and you guys can you know, disagree and that's fine but we're not going to kick somebody out over this um and then i was also interested in bethel just because of more practical things we were living in the the dc area before we moved up here and to go to seminary on either of the coasts would have been way more expensive and I would have either had to take out loans or, um, you know, not be able to, it would have been difficult to, to continue working, um, mm. at the level that I was. So there are practical reasons like that as well. Sure. Um, so my, uh, program, um, was called a master of arts in Christian thought and they've since changed it considerably. Like if you go to the Bethel seminary website and look at it now, it's not the same as the program is what I did. Um, essentially it's like a theological studies degree, but with, which is, I think a more common, um, program across schools, but with, um, more focus on engaging with culture. So we would have classes like, um, theology and science or like the church and social issues, um, a little bit more outward focused, uh, which I really appreciated because of the, the way it let me, um, link to and, and draw on more of the, the political and, and cultural commentary that I do for work most of the time. Um, and yeah, I thought that it was important to go to seminary, especially because, and I know you'll appreciate this as a younger woman working in very traditionally male fields, um, both right. theology and also like writing about foreign policy. That's a super old dude area. Um, it helps to have some some extra academic credentials to to have people take you seriously always always i definitely am have all my degrees because i want to be taken seriously yeah and i mean i'm looking into phd program well one in particular right now um for significantly the same reasons. Like I have no intention of going into academia or, or like full-time church ministry. Um, it's really to have the degree to say, Hey, I have a degree. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, that's funny. I totally felt the exact same way leaving undergrad. I was like, I need to go to more school. Um, I just, (laughs) I just felt like no matter what field you're in, and I've always been drawn to more male dominated fields like sports and academic theology. So I knew I was already like a leg down. So what, what, what can women do to get a leg up? And I think that was my natural thought process too. I just, I need to get more degrees and, you know, just, I, I'm like a lifelong student. I want to learn. I want to 
I enjoy learning, enjoy go, going to school, but certainly to have some credentials um, doesn't hurt anything in the business, in the real world, right? It's true. It's true. Yeah. That's really neat. My master's is in theological studies, but I focused on ethics, which I know you're probably thinking about for your, your doctoral work. Is that what you said? Yeah, I'm looking at a, a theological ethics program at the University of Aberdeen, and actually uh, yeah. tomorrow chatting with um, there's it's a small department, so one of the like two possible supervisors I would have there. But I'm probably at least a year away from you know starting anything there for real. So we'll right. see what goes. A friend of mine is doing her doctorate there in uh, systematic theology. If you Oh, interesting. Wanted to talk to someone who's, who's in the program. That's good to know. Yeah. Um, that's great. I think ethics is the bomb and especially in how you like to do political commentary about what's going on in the world. I mean, that's, that's ethics. Um, yeah. And I, I like, uh, the program and options that they have there significantly because I think it, um, would let me draw sort of both sides of that and keep a foot in, in both camps as opposed to many programs. It seems like, especially in theology, they tend to be um, very much limited to one discipline. And then they also tend to drift either to like extremely academic in the sense of like, there's very little real world application. It's just, let's take a deep dive into some obscure thinker's thought and compare it to some other obscure thinker's thought. Uh, Or they're very much at like the pastoral end, um, which both of those are, have their place and can be great, but are not what I ideally would like to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about, you know, what, what got you into political commentary writing? Uh, Because I know you write for a bunch of different um, news outlets and you also, I know, write from a perspective, not only as a Christian, but as a, a liber- libertarian, which I, I don't know a ton about. I honestly don't read a ton of politics. I get a lot of my news from my just people on Twitter talking about things. <laughs> I try to kind of, it's just, especially right now in our political climate, it's so crazy. It's difficult to, uh, want to engage with it, but where do you, where do you enter and why do you care so much? And why has this been a vocational kind of seems almost like a calling or passion for you? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I knew by like late high school that I wanted to write for a living. And so then it was a question of what I want to write about. Um, and fiction was never an option. Um, even, even then I, I realized that my stories were terrible. Um, so, uh, in terms of, so, you know, I, I was, at that time, for some reason, super into news magazines like Time and Newsweek were very, very exciting reading for me. I, I don't know why the fascination, but um, yeah, so that sort of sent me on a course towards um, news, which is, of course, mostly political. And uh, so I majored in political science in college and then started after college. I worked for a couple of years at some political nonprofits doing um communication stuff. So, you know, more of your press releases than your issue papers. Um, and then when we moved up here, I was able to gradually transition into, um, writing opinion and and commentary and some reporting full time. Um, and so I mostly write about what I would sort of loosely label, um, 
abuses of peace and power. So I do a lot of foreign policy stuff. I do a lot of civil liberties, um, a lot of stuff about police brutality and misconduct. Um, less on like the you know economic side of things, um, less on the the social issues, and then I do a a fair bit on um, some of the intersection of of religion and politics, which usually involves talking about like civil religion and how dysfunctional um, the American church's relation to politics frequently is, especially in this era. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I am a libertarian. Um, the in practice, that that usually means um, most people very much agree with me on some things and, and very much disagree on others. Um, the <laughs> the for me, what it significantly means is that I, I don't trust our government to be um, policing the world and, and micromanaging our lives, telling us you know how to um, worship or do business or where to live or, um, who to have relationships with, uh, who to associate with all of these are questions I think that are not in, uh, the government's wheelhouse to decide. Um, and, uh, I, I especially appreciate libertarianism's consistent critique of, um, abuses of power, regardless of, of what party is involved, um, regardless of what uniform they may be wearing. Um, and, and in this, these past two decades, consistent critique of our, our foreign policy. Um, and so, yeah, I, I write on a, a weekly basis for, um, a number of outlets. I'm a, a foreign policy fellow at a think tank, and then I'm the weekend editor for the week, which is very confusing, but the week is a, a new <laughs> magazine and I manage the website on the weekends, um, and do some, some long form commentary for them as well. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so what makes you want to engage or do, how do I want to put this? Bring theology as a, a lens through which you do this, this work. Cause you're, you have a professional degree already in theology and you're thinking about, you know, continuing that. And I would think that that, kind of helps shape how you address these topics you're, you're writing about, but what's important about having that, that lens or that perspective for you? Well, two things. And one on a selfish level, I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to take another 40 years of American politics, um, <laughs> <laughs> thinking and writing about it day in and day out. And so, um, you know, obviously can't predict the future. We'll see how this goes, but I would guess that over time my career would shift more into the political realm and, and somewhat away from politics, though probably never entirely. Um, but, uh, the, I mean, the other thing is that I think it's, it's already entwined. Um, there's already so much, um, often unconscious mixing of our, our theology and politics, often in, in very destructive and I would say even idolatrous ways. Um, so because that's already happening, um, I think it's important to explicitly um, make that connection and say, and, and call out like, look, there are ways in which your politics have influenced your theology that you may not realize. And there's ways that you're bringing theology into politics um, that, that can be destructive. And so for example, um, I mentioned civil religion, and this is something that I, I write about relatively often. And, and basically the idea there is that um, we, we sort of sacralize the state. We make it 
um, we, we confer um, God's favor upon it, or we, we treat as if we treat it as if it, it has God's favor, and, and as if the things that the our government does are in some sense um, holy or, or divinely commanded. Um, and so, for example, you'll oftentimes hear presidents talking about, and this is from both parties. Um, there are plenty of examples of President Obama doing this, though I, I think it's we tend to associate it more with the religious right. Um, but you hear the president's talking about how the country is called to do something, um, typically to, you know, go bomb something. Um, right. And there's no specification of who's doing the calling, but the only obvious conclusion is God is calling us to do this. Um, and, right. you know, we have sort of a whole pseudo-religious structure of patriotism where we have like our hymns, like our America the Beautiful, our national anthem, these sorts of things. We have our holidays. We have our saints, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson. Right. Um, and I think this interferes with and influences our, um, our theology and our, our relationship with God in ways that um, need to be pointed out so we can be aware of what's happening um, and think about it more critically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what, I, I totally agree. And that's, I think another reason why I wanted to do get an advanced degree in theology is to be able to commentate for me more on social issues like, you know, se- sexism, homophobia, um, Islamophobia, whatever it is, more um, social issues that are also theological issues um, and be able to talk in the language of of our country because our country is a predominantly Christian nation. And we, like you said, we mix those two things all the time, our, our theology and our politics. Um, so I think it would probably be a good thing for people talking in the public to know something a little bit more than what they learned in Sunday school about the dominant religion of our country that people use all the time for good or for ill. Yeah, there's been a string lately of very unfortunate media misunderstandings of um, religious stuff. Um, one of them, and I can't remember exactly what it was, it was something like they were covering um, something to do with the Pope, and it was like this very, uh, they like misheard the words, and, and I'm, I'm, this is not the example, but it would be like, it was something as common as like the word was Eucharist and they wrote down like, I don't know, ooh, a Chris. Like it was just totally different words that were not a thing <laughs> at all. Um, and of course, you know, retractions had to be issued. I think it, this happened around Easter. It was, it was pretty rough. Um, just yeah. the, sort of the basic, not even theological at that point almost, but like cultural illiteracy that was happening. Right. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Well, what's important about being a woman doing the work you do? Um, I mean, certainly I, I think it's um, useful to have women doing this sort of thing to, just as a, a, in the sense of like representation to show um, younger women that this is, is doable and you can be involved in these conversations and you, you know, don't have to be a, 60 year old guy to be thinking and and talking about these things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I do think that there's going to be some, some differences of perspective and 
for instance, in, in foreign policy, um, I frequently talk about, um, when my editors let me, um, <laughs> frequently talk about, uh, you know, the, the human consequences of war and of sanctions um, and the, the civilian casualties and that sort of thing. And I, I don't know if maybe there's um, less of an interest among men in, in bringing up those sorts of concerns or um, maybe it's just not like the, the standard um, formula of, of typical foreign policy conversations to, to pay attention to that to the same extent. Um, and so, yeah, I think there are, are different insights and perspectives that, that women will bring to the table uh, that we, we wouldn't have if we were having um, just men having the same conversations. And it's, you know, it may be difficult at any given time to, to pinpoint what those are, um, to say how would this have gone differently if we had only men at the table. Um, right. Because it's it's perhaps difficult to, to come up with, like, that counterfactual list does not mean that it's <laughs> um, a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and lastly, for this part, um, like you said, you're doing a lot of, a lot of your work, I, I can imagine, is probably gets intellectually and spiritually draining. Um, talking about U.S. politics all day long, I, like I said, I can't even engage with it just watching it on TV. Like, I can't. Um, it, it makes me that amped up and stressed out. But what what helps counterbalance that for you? And this is more of a spiritual question. Like how do you, like what I sometimes ask this to people I interview, like what's saving your life right now or what's, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, on a, on a practical level, some, some sort of like precautions, if you will. So for example, whenever possible, I don't watch or listen to like politicians giving their speeches. I only read them. Um, mm. Transcripts are so easily available now that you can usually get the transcript without, without much of a delay mm-hmm. from the, the speech. And I find that um, it sounds really simple, but I find that that makes a big difference in um, my experience of it, both in terms of like not getting uh, so emotionally involved. Um, if there's, you know, maybe something about their personal style that, I find irritating or off-putting. And then also even just in terms of like evaluating what they're saying more fairly, um, regardless of whether I like them or dislike them. Mm -hmm. Um, On my days off, I I try to, you know, totally um, stay off the news as much as possible um, and just sort of disconnect from that. Um, Especially in the summer, I try to to spend um, as much time outside, you know, working in the garden or whatever on those days as possible to just be in a completely separate space, um, mentally and and spiritually and emotionally. Um, and then, yeah, I think my, my church community is super important for this as well. Just like staying, um, seeing people and, and talking to them about like other things and things that matter way more than politics in our real lives. Um, and, doing that not just on on Sunday morning like a one time a week thing but um, throughout the week on a, a regular basis engaging with people um, and, and keeping those those connections active um, and and more focused on 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 God and on on our um, 
like facts of real life as opposed to whatever craziness is happening in Washington. Right. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing about all that. Um, I love getting more context about, about folks before we get into the, the nitty gritty of the theological questions. And in this case, your book, which is awesome. I'm really excited about talking about next. Thanks again, Bonnie, for sharing your story and letting us get to know a little bit more about the author behind the new book, A Flexible Faith, which we dive into much deeper in next week's episode. Y'all can find Bonnie at her website, bonniechristian.com, and on Twitter, at Bonnie Christian. We'll see y'all next week. Peace.